0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. As we will see in a, in a minute, really felt divorce was okay, and that really divorce for just about any reason, I, I mean, really any reason. And so Jesus is pushing back on these guys, and he's he's challenging their thinking. Um. But, but but the passage raises a whole pile of questions and part of the part of my problem preparing for this sermon is uh, i went from there one or two questions to about 50 right so here's some of the questions that this this passage brings up uh, that we can't answer all today but we'll try to get to as we untangle all of this first is it ever okay to get a divorce second do i do i have to remain in a marriage where i am miserable or perhaps being abused or mistreated uh, what if my husband or wife is being unfaithful? Uh, do I still have to remain married to them? Uh, what am I supposed to do if I'm so unhappy in my marriage I just can't take it anymore? Um, what should I do if my spouse just won't change? Or, maybe the other side of it, what should I do if my spouse is always wanting me to change? Right? They just won't stop like, trying to change who I am. Why does it have to be so hard to be married? Uh, maybe it is just better to stay single. Uh, or, as is commonly practiced in the world today, why not just live with someone so I can bail out when it doesn't work? right? Why don't I just live together and that way there's no strings, there's no, there's no chains. Uh, when it stops working out, we just go our separate ways. Um, and, and it really raises the whole question then, really, what is marriage? What does it mean to be married? Um, Isn't it just a piece of paper? And why does that piece of paper matter so much? Does does that little piece of paper, that marriage license, really change anything? Um, And and if I do get divorced, is it okay to remarry? Um, If I'm divorced and remarried, am I living in adultery? Those are all the questions. Right. And unfortunately, we can't answer them all today, but the good news is you, you'll tune in next week because you'll want to know the answers to these questions, right? Um, uh, so, so but, but today, rather than thinking about all those questions, I think it's good to boil it down to kind of the most basic question, right? And, and the most, most basic question we, we see in this passage is, what is the secret to fulfilling God's plan for marriage in my life? What does God have for me? And this might mean, this might mean getting married. It might mean means staying single. But what does it mean for me to fulfill what God has for me in my life? And as I said, the Pharisees came. They're testing Jesus. They're asking a very negative question. But Jesus really does turn it around. And he highlights uh, the positive. That God has a calling and a purpose for our lives. And for many, it, it involves marriage. Uh, For some, it involves staying single. For some, it involves being single now. But there's that hope of of marriage someday. And and what does all that look like for us? right? So let's let's, uh, begin uh, unpacking this a bit. Um, uh, We're going to start at verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking this question. Now, again, these guys... Their motive is not really wanting to know, uh, for their own life, how to apply scripture. Right? They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to show that there's something wrong with Jesus' teaching. Um, and, and, and so the, the question is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Um, uh, So you could put it this way, they're they're saying, when is it God's purpose, when is fulfilling God's plan involved bailing out on my marriage? Um, And in in Jesus' day, it's important to know and understand, in in Jewish culture, uh, men could divorce their wives. Wives were never allowed or permitted to divorce their husband. Uh, And in fact, many of the laws were put in place to actually protect wives and women. Uh, But So so this whole discussion is very lopsided, one-sided, because in Jesus' day and in Jesus' culture among Jewish people, it was only a right of men. Now, in Roman law, uh, women could divorce their husbands, uh, but that wasn't true uh, for the Jews. Um, and, And clearly these guys are not trying to seek help for their failing marriages. They're probably trying to justify their really poor treatment, actually, of women. Uh, And and the question they ask is, when is it permissible? When does the law allow? Uh, And it's important to note what they do not ask. They do not ask, is divorce ever allowed? Okay, Under Jewish law, uh, you have to understand the background of the Old Testament law here. Under uh, Old Testament law, uh, divorce was allowed. And it was allowed specifically with cases of adultery. Uh, In fact, not only was it allowed, but it was actually... Uh, uh, expected or even demanded. And so we just uh, studied, you know, went through Christmas season, we talked about Mary and Joseph, and that was Joseph's dilemma. Right? When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, uh, it really wasn't an option for him to say, should I get divorced or not? Actually, the expectation was, no, if you're not the father, you have to divorce her. And by marrying her, in that culture, he was making a claim full on that he was the father. But that's how it worked in that culture. So, so they're not asking here, is divorce ever allowed? Okay, in Jewish culture, everybody knew it was allowed where there was adultery, okay, where, where there was marital unfaithfulness. They knew that, yes, absolutely, it was allowed and actually expected. Uh, and that was actually also true uh, in Roman in Roman. Uh, law, and in Roman law, if a man was unfaithful, the the woman was expected to divorce her husband. Right? But the question is this: not is it ever possible to divorce? The question is this: um, what are the conditions, or what is the what's the just cause for divorce? When is it permitted? And and the wording here is: um, is it lawful for one to divorce his wife for any cause? Uh, your Bible may translate in some, some good paraphrases, say, really, for any and every cause. Because that was really the question. Like, like, can you get divorced for just any old reason, or are there certain limits, right? Um, and, and this wording comes actually from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And in, verse, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses uh, gave some um, conditions, some permissions for divorce, and, and this is what it says. Now, now, they had, uh, they did not really interpret this passage correctly. And it's very interesting that Jesus doesn't actually deal with their, uh, their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. But let me read it. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in, in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And then it goes on with three more verses. And the point of this is that, um, that if that happens, the law was that she, and she went and got remarried or he went and got remarried. And then that second marriage failed. Uh, the point Moses is making here is that the original husband and the original wife can't get back and remarry. That was forbidden. Okay? So the passage is actually not talking about divorce so much as it's talking about remarrying somebody that you've been married to and divorced. Okay? That's, the, that's the context. But they jumped on this one phrase. Okay? Uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Okay, so the question for them was, well, let's assumed they got divorced, so uh, clearly Moses must have allowed it right? Uh, and the question was, what is this indecency? What's the indecency in your wife that allows you to divorce her? Uh, now, there were two schools on this. One was the school of Shammai, who said the indecency here is clearly just uh, marital unfaithfulness or, or adultery. But if it comes out that your wife has been unfaithful to you, uh, whether before married or during marriage, uh, that would be grounds for divorce, right? Um, but the more popular and commonly held view was was the view of Hillel, and his school of thought was this, that that, uh, just cause means anything. Like anything your wife does that displeases you. Like if your wife is annoying, well, there's grounds for divorce, right? Uh, If she burns your breakfast, and this is actually written, they actually wrote this out. If she burns your breakfast, grounds for divorce, right? Burns your toast, Grounds for divorce, right? Any, they took any indecency very broad, right? very broad, right? And um, which view do you think was was most popular? Well, of course, Hillel, right? And the Pharisees, the ones asking this question, uh, certainly uh, followed that school. In fact, when we see a little bit later the comments of the disciples, it seems they also believe and followed the school of Hillel, and 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 they kind of all believed that. Yeah, basically, if you don't like your wife, just get rid of her. Send her away. Write that letter. Pack her bags. Kick her out the door, and and divorce her. Right. So so that's the context. That's the question. And so Jesus re- re- responds to them, and like I said, it's interesting. Like if I was Jesus, I would have said, "Okay, guys, you got the wrong picture of Deuteronomy 24. Let me explain. Let's go back and let's look at Deuteronomy 24, and let's clear clear up." your confusion there, right? But Jesus does not do that. Instead, he goes all the way back to Genesis, and he really uh, unfolds for them God's original plan for marriage. He says, hey guys, let's look, let's look and see what marriage really is. Uh, and so he, he doesn't quote all of Genesis uh, chapter 2, but he, he highlights some principles from, from Genesis chapter 2, and this is what he says. He says, uh, "Have you not read?" Okay. And by the way, these are to like the church leaders. Okay, this would be like saying to the pastor, "Haven't you read the Bible?" That's what he says. Haven't you read the Bible? Namely, Genesis. In the beginning, um, uh, I'm sorry. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made the male and female, and said, "Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall, and the two shall become." One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. One flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is full of uh, concepts and themes from Genesis. The first one is the theme of creator. God created man as male and female for the very purpose and design of marriage. Super important principle here. Marriage is not something man made up. Okay, it's not some custom or some culture that way back in some ancient culture, they decided, well, we should have a ceremony. Like, we should make this more official. Like, we should we should make this more permanent. No. Okay, this was God's design in the very beginning before he even made Adam and Eve. And it influenced how he made them. Right? It says he made them male and female. Right, So so uh, we're going to talk about what marriage is. And marriage is something that happens between a male and a female. And we'll talk a little bit more about how this relates to our world that wants to make it male and male and female and female. Okay, God did not create it or intend it or design it that way. God's design purpose from the beginning uh, is that uh that it would it would be it would have something to do with the maleness and femaleness. Right? And in that concept there are some key principles uh, and that is that uh as male and female they are different in body, in mind, and in soul. A distinct and different. Okay, in body, uh male and female have a different sex. Means And by the way, this is going to get a little uh, like PG-13 maybe. I don't know. So parents, I don't know if you want to cover your kids' ears. I apologize. But I don't know how else to talk about this, right? I just don't know how else to talk about it. Um, I should have given an earlier disclaimer. But you can send your kids out now if you want. Uh, We are created with different plumbing. Okay, boys and girls just have different plumbing. Parents, you can explain to your kids what the different plumbing is. I'm not going there. But um, we our bodies are different. Right, Girls can carry and give birth to babies. Guys can't. Praise God. Right, <laughs> Praise God. Uh, and, and believe me, ladies, my, my prayers and my heart, it goes with you. And you're my heroes for doing that. It's awesome. But um, it's different, right? Physically, we are different. But not just that. We are also different gender. Now, in, when I was growing up, the word gender and the word sex kind of meant the same thing. Like there's two genders, male and female. There's two sexes, male and female. It used to mean, that's like what it used to mean. It doesn't actually mean that anymore. Gender now has come to mean how I think about my myself in terms of my maleness or femaleness or it or otherness or combined or whatever, right? It's, it's now my idea of my sexuality, which uh, in the modern world is very separate and distinct from my actual biological Maleness or femaleness. But but God did not create it that way. When God created male and female, he created them with different bodies, but also with very distinct and separate genders that comprise um, uh, their emotional makeup and mindset. And a mindset that's very different. An emotional makeup that's very different between men and women. And as a result, uh, we have different natures. The way we think, the way we behave, the way we see the world. And, and God created us that way, and it has to do with marriage. God could have done this very differently. He could have, he could have created, uh, made it where like people were just, you know, grew on trees, and we just go pick a baby, and you pluck them off the tree, or I don't know how. You, but he could have done it a lot of different ways, but he decided to create human beings, as sexual beings, who live in married relationships, and who make babies, and who procreate. And 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 it's his design, okay? It's his design, and and uh, and so he says that he made the male and female, and uh, he said therefore for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Some more important theological words there, um, uh, this male and femaleness. He says they made them for each other. Uh, and for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he shall cling to his wife. And the word there literally means be, to be glued together, to be glued, to be attached to one another in some way. Um, and uh, that is represented in the physical union that happens in marriage, but it's also an emotional soul-bonding experience that's a result of sexual intimacy, Right? Uh, and God created, created it that way. And the result is, he says, the two shall become one. Now, of course, in our modern scientific world, we look at all this and we go, well, well, scientific and individualistic, I should say. We look at this and we say, well, I'm still, I'm still me. Right? I still have my flesh. I'm not one with anybody else, right? Um, but God says something happens. Something happens in marriage that the two shall become one. That this union, this emotional, soul bonding, spiritual bonding, physical bonding, uh, whatever happens, something happens that we become connected and attached to another human being in a way that makes us one in some way. I don't pretend to understand or know what all that means, um, but it's it's a real thing. right? It's how God made us. God created us this way. He created us for this purpose. And we know that when when a couple comes together in sexual union, there is an emotional bond that goes with that. And that emotional bond is very strong and very very powerful. And it it unites us with that other human being. And and so uh, in this marriage union, there's a level of intimacy and longevity or permanence that is unlike any other human relationship, even, even to parents. Right? So that's why they leave their parents and they become this new entity, this new family. Um, uh, and and there, there are, in marriage, our lives become joined in such a way that the person is no longer a private individual. Okay? Some of our individualism is lost. And uh, in marriage, this can be a real source of, of struggle and conflict because guys tend to prize a lot their individuality. Uh, the femaleness, the, the, the wife, tends to value a lot more the connection and the togetherness. All right. So what this is like is like, you ever played with magnets where you got the positive and the negative, right? When you get the positive and negative lined up, they attract each other, but what happens when you get the two wrong poles? They like repel, right? So this is how it kind of works in marriage. One of us is wanting to attract, and one of us is wanting to repel. Okay, so here's the first problem in marriage. Uh, and, and if you've never experienced that, just give it time. Just give it time. All right. Or else open your eyes and see that you know, your partner is experiencing it, even if you are not. All right, so, so, so this gives us this picture, all right? So, uh, so it's good to stop here and ask the question, really, what exactly is marriage? Like, what is it that makes you married or not married? Right? And um, let me just give a little, okay, I, I'm going to throw out a lot of personal opinions here because it's all I have to go on, okay? Personal opinions based on my study of scripture and reading a lot of books. Uh, if you disagree with me, it's okay, right? Uh, but I hope you think about it. Right. But a lot of this isn't explicit in this passage or maybe even explicit in the Bible. It's more inferred or implied. But let's think a little bit about what, what marriage is. Uh, what is it What is it that actually makes you married? Uh, I have a, and I just did, you know, last month I did three weddings in nine days. It was awesome. Congratulations to our married couples who are here. Um, and so... Uh, for, for Alex, Alexander and Sarah, I did theirs in Thai and English. And I was reading through the, the Thai book that I use, kind of the marriage guide book, right? And uh, it's very interesting because in the Thai book, it says this. It says, you know, we, get, we have this ceremony in the church and we do all this stuff in the church, but you need to make sure and let couples know that they're really not married just getting married in the church, that that's not what marries them, that you have to go to the government and register it. That's what makes it official. Okay, is that true? Right? Is that what really makes your marriage official, that you went to the government and you got that piece of paper from the government? Right? Some might say yes, some might say no. Uh, some would say, well, no, it's the ceremony that does it. Like, you've got to have the ceremony, and you have to have that ceremony like before witnesses. And, like, why also do we do this? Because we just want to spend a lot of money? Or, I don't know, like, why do we do it, right, if it's not about the ceremony you have to have the, if you have the ceremony, that's what makes it official. You're married when you have that ceremony. Um, I would say that those are both wrong. Okay, I would say that from Genesis 1 and from, and from even what Jesus is saying here, that neither one of those things actually make you married. Okay, Because uh, what Jesus says here is this. He says, uh, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What God has joined, let not man separate. Okay, this is what I think makes you married, It's when you consummate that marriage and sexual intimacy. Right? That's what Jesus that's What Jesus? That's what God is talking about here in Genesis. Right? It's coming together as male and female in that intimate sexual union in marriage, that consummation that something happens. That you become bonded to another human being. And and he says here that God created you, that God is the one who does it. Right? So God's orchestrated it that way. It comes from him. And, And when this happens, God binds you together as one flesh. And it says, What God has joined together, do not let man separate. Um. So it's a a union that's clearly created by God, not by institutions or even by the church. It's something that God created, that God joins together. Um, uh, And it's fundamentally something that that God does. And so marriage is first and foremost a moral coming together, not legal. Now, uh, does that mean we shouldn't, make it legal? Does it mean we don't need the piece of paper? Well, I think we do need the piece of paper. Uh, it honors governments. Um, and uh, states acknowledge a marriage for legal purposes. And the legal purposes have to do with owning property and setting up joint bank accounts. Right? Um, uh, so there's kind of the moral side of, of marriage, and there's the legal side. Right? Uh, what, what, what is more important, though, the moral side or the legal side? Well, the, the part God does is more important. Uh, governments can also dissolve marriages. And what that means is they, they, they help you decide how you divide up your joint property. They decide how you divide up your joint bank accounts and your children, right? But God has really no part of that, right? God has joined people together in marriage as one flesh uh, through that union, of heart and soul and body and mind. And he says what God has joined together, let no one separate. Right? Something happens there that was not intended to be broken or severed. Right? Um, it, is, it is meant to be permanent. Um, <clears throat> so, then, <laughs> so here's the next question. I love these questions, right? I'm sorry I have to ask these questions, but um, I, I just don't know how to get around this. So the next question is, If that's all true, then does having uh, sex with someone make you married to them? Should we take a vote on that? (laughs) I'd love to know what your opinions are. Well, um, actually, at some level, yes. Yes. In the moral side, yes. And here's why. Because God created us that that when we came together, we come together as as man and woman in, in this act, uh, in this coming together of heart and soul, that, that a bond is made uh, through that, that, that moment that, that, that binds us in a, in a very unique and special way, that no other human bond or attachment forms. Right? And, and so that's why throughout history, uh, marriage has been very protected, right? that, that we don't make that bond with just anyone, that we're careful about who we make that bonding connection with, and so uh, cultures have, from from far back in history, have understood the significant and, and significance and weight of that coming together, and so cultures have set up a lot of boundaries so that um, so that it is in the context of a of a covenant relationship, and certainly Christians of all people, and in the Old Testament, the Jews saw this uh, entering into this union as something you you enter into in a covenant way meaning you pledge and you make a promise to uh to continue in that relationship for life right. except for apparently the Jews didn't right because they had put in some escape clauses uh i will marry you i will be i will love you for till death do us part unless you burn my toast <laughs> and then it's off Right, right. Uh, but but most cultures have realized that that entering into this bond, this connection, this oneness, uh, is 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 a big deal. So they put they put a lot of fences around it, and they made coming together something that involved a lot of ceremony, and a lot of pomp, and even uh, legal standing to protect it. Right, right. Uh, that validates this coming together, right? So we don't just randomly sleep with somebody and, oh, hey, we're married, right? But we we carefully enter into a relationship with somebody who we can commit to, who we we feel called to be together with. And so the church does this as a ceremony where we witness this coming together and this covenant-making but I really do believe that the actual part that God does is in the consummation of the marriage. right? Uh, and that's why adultery, okay, sex outside of marriage, is such a big deal in the Bible. right? Uh, because uh, it's not just a casual thing. And this is where the world, I think, uh, drastically misunderstands what marriage is. And in fact, uh, the modern world really laughs at this idea. Like when we hold up this vision of marriage as this coming together and binding together of heart and soul and body of two people in a a permanent, God-bound way, the world laughs at it and they mock it as silly and ridiculous and old-fashioned. And that's because they they do not see and cannot see the hand of God at work Knitting two lives together through the intimacy of sexual union and and that commitment, right? So in the world, uh, sex is simply a casual pastime. It's a hobby that has little to do with actually even the relationship between the two people involved. And it's just tragic in the modern world how cheap sex has become, right? And how separate it has come from even a relationship. And you read, it's just... (laughs) I mean, don't, don't, don't do not don't this, but if you want to, uh, you read what kids, high school, college kids, write about sex and how trivial it is, uh, it means nothing to them. And it's just mind-boggling that kids can have sex with each other and not even know the other person or care about them at all. Right? And, and, and that's just so far away from what Jesus is talking about here. Right? Um, so, so uh, while well, well, we're on the topic of our culture's misunderstanding, so if you get the picture here, in older times, and, and by hopefully more conservative branches of the church, uh, we teach our members that we find meaning in marriage through duty. Huh. Okay, let me say that again, because it's like, what? That we find meaning in marriage through duty. In old times, they talked about marriage being a duty. and and something of an obligation. Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. (laughs) Um, uh, And and this duty is one of embracing assigned roles and carrying them out faithfully. We'll also come back to that. But uh, let's talk about the modern thinking. During the Enlightenment, uh, all that began to change and shift. Uh, And uh, I actually copied this from uh, Tim Keller in his book, on marriage, I forget what it's called. It's really a good book, though, on marriage. Uh, and he says that during the Enlightenment, this, this, this thinking shifted, and the meaning of life came to be seen as the freedom of the individual to choose the life that most fulfills him or her personally. Okay, that's the world we live in. We live in a world where it's all about me fulfilling my dreams and my visions and my goals. Right? So instead of finding meaning through self-denial and through giving up one's freedoms and binding oneself to the duties of marriage and family, now marriage was redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and self-actualization. Okay, It's it's making me happy. In fact, uh, just recently in the New York Times, a columnist, Tara Parker Pope, wrote an article entitled, the happy marriage is the me marriage and this is i mean this is real I don't, i'm not making this up okay this is the new york times well okay it's the new york times but uh the me marriage okay this is what she writes the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive and i would say yeah <laughs> yeah uh, after all isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first Well, not anymore, she writes. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. That's what Christians believe. That's kind of what we uphold. But she says in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain value goals. In other words, the, the modern value of marriage is, I find somebody who makes me feel good about me. I find somebody who helps me be who I'm supposed to be. Right? Well, that sounds pretty wonderful, right? Who doesn't want to find somebody who makes me feel good about being me? I want that, right? I want somebody who worships me, and who thinks I am the greatest thing since sliced bread, and who just adores me. Who doesn't want that? Right? It would be great if at least one person felt that way about me, right? What's wrong with that? And that's the, Ameri- that's the, the modern vision of marriage. Right? Uh, but Tim Keller writes this. He says, but ironically, this new view, newer view of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on marriage and on spouses in a way that more traditional marriages never did. They are all looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their every emotional, sexual, and spiritual desire. And that creates an extreme idealism uh, and and ultimately a pessimism that you will never find the right person. And the truth is, you you will never find the right person. Because guess what? There's not one person out there in the world who's whose sole purpose in life is to fulfill all of your dreams and desires. Any more than you live to fulfill somebody else's dreams and desires, right? It's ironic that that humanism has led us to this point. Life is all about me, and therefore marriage is about find somebody who's all about me. But to do that, I have to be about somebody besides me. It can't work. Right? It can't work. Um, so, but that is, the, that is the, the view of marriage. and So no wonder that people just live together. Right? I'm just going to live with somebody until they no longer do it for me. I'm going to move on to the next person because I don't believe that this person's really going to measure up. Well, of course they won't. Right? Of course they won't. Marriage becomes impossible because you will never find somebody who will be that much about you. Well then, what's the alternative? Is marriage supposed to be a duty then? Right? Is that what we really believe? If it's not self-gratifying, then what? Why would I strap myself to a life of duty and burden? Uh, well, we're going to talk more about this next week, but let me just lay out a couple things from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, what is God's design purpose for marriage? Right? What is God designed for us in marriage. Genesis 2.18, I won't read the whole passage of Genesis, but just this one verse says this. The Lord God said to Adam, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In this verse we see a couple uh, of God's design or purpose in marriage. Uh, And real briefly, the first one is that marriage is a place to grow. I don't mean that in the sense of fulfilling all your self-actualizations or dreams, but it is a place where God's designed for us to to grow, to be stretched, and to be changed. Okay, and and not changed by our wife, or our spouse trying to change us, or we trying to change our spouse, but it is a place where naturally we grow and we develop into become uh, better people. How does this work? Well. Uh, Adam said that um, when he got Eve, he said, Whoa, woman. Whoa, man. Right? Woman. Whoa. And he was impressed with her. And he said two things about her. He said, Whoa, she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And by that, Adam identified that she is like me. Right? There's a correspondence. There's something about her that I can relate to because she is like me. Um, But God also said that he created uh, Eve, for Adam, as, as, a, as a good fit, as a good fit. Now, uh, good fit probably doesn't mean what we think it means, right? Like when I'm thinking I'm going to find a wife for, who's a good fit for me, you know, I have my idea of what that means. But actually, what, what the word here means is somebody who corresponds to me because they are, uh, in some ways, my opposite. They actually fill in the gaps in my life. They complete me because they bring something to my life who uh, who fills in what I don't have. That's what makes them a good fit, not because they're so much like us, but because they're they're different. They complete us, right? So, so you see here that this picture of, of marriage is one in which they are like us and they're not like us, right? And this is, in my opinion, craziness. <laughs> This is craziness, right? And if you've been married for long, you understand this craziness. Because you're married to this person who's a lot like you, and at the same time, not at all like you in any way. And I joke around that Denise and I can't agree on one single thing. And it's kind of a joke, but maybe not, right? Because in real life, like, this is how it is. We just can't really agree on anything. Because we see the world so differently. Well, how does this help us grow? (laughs) Oh, boy, does it help us grow, right? And it's God's design to to complete us, to help us grow, because we, if we're going to make this work, we have to learn how to see the world through another person's eyes, right? Let me give you a real uh, fun illustration from my own life of how this works. It has to do with buying Christmas presents for my wife. Early on, you know, I'd go Christmas shopping for my wife, and I had not yet learned the importance of seeing the world through her eyes. I saw the world through my eyes, and I assumed because she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh that she saw the world the same way I did. And what I love, I love machines. I love things that plug in. I love things that make noise, right? I love saws. I love, things, I love tools because they do stuff. I can make stuff, I can build stuff, I can destroy stuff, right? Um, I mean, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of Tim the Tool Man, you know, I like building stuff. And I assumed that Denise also had the same love for, for machines that I did. That she would love something that plugged in and made noise and did cool stuff just like I did. So when we were very young in our marriage, I went out and I bought her a vacuum cleaner And, you know, there's a commercial out now. Zales did this great, you know, the double-bagger doghouse thing. That was before, I mean, I was before that time. You know, if I'd only seen that commercial, I would have known how foolish this was. And I got so excited. I spent a lot of money. We didn't have much money back then. And I spent all this money buying her a vacuum cleaner for Christmas. And when she opened that box, the look on her face did not spell I'm happy at all. It spelled... Uh, you're an idiot, right? What are you thinking? right? Uh, And and I I ended up in my own doghouse, right? And as it turns out, and as I began to learn about her and see the world through her eyes and try to understand how she thought about things, I discovered that she did not like things that plugged in or that did anything. She actually liked and wanted gifts that were just useless things. (laughs) Useless, pointless things. Like flowers. Like, what can you fix with flowers? Nothing. Nothing. Diamonds. And I'm not talking like a diamond studded saw blade. I mean, like, one you stick in your ear. Like, what is the point of that? Doesn't do anything. Right? But what I started to learn is that, uh, that women, uh, my wife anyway, Values things because it's a treasure. Because we assign a certain value to it because we cherish it. Because that's how she wants to be treated, right? She wants me to value her, not for what she can do. Uh, She's not a tool in my toolbox. But because she is a treasure in my treasure box, right? That she wants to be cherished for who she is as a person. And things like diamonds and flowers... Are symbols of that that uh, that I give to her because it reminds uh, reminds her that that she is a treasure to me. Right? Well, that's a completely different way of seeing and thinking for me, and I had to grow, I had to expand my world view. <laughs> Life is not just about doing, but it's also about being. And not only did it help me understand uh, uh, her, but it also was an important lesson about God Himself. Right? That God doesn't value me just because I can do stuff for him. Or that God's love for me isn't based on what I do. But ultimately, it's because God himself treasures me. And, and I am cherished by him. That he values me, not because I'm a tool, but because I'm his treasure. Right? And, and marriage helped me grow in that. Right? And that's just one example. There's many, many others. But but by being married to somebody who's very different than us, right? It expands our vision, and it helps us grow to become much deeper, richer, fuller people. It completes us to become ultimately more like God. Uh, second thing, we'll close with this: uh, marriage serves as a place where we serve. Right? Another important purpose or function in marriage is it's a place for us to serve. Uh, the Lord said, uh, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Eve was made as a helpmate, as a helper for Adam. She was made to serve him. Uh, and it wasn't just Adam. We could stop there and we could say, Yeah, this is all about wives serving the husbands. Amen. Let's go home. Right? Unfortunately, we can't stop there. Because in the New Testament, Paul writes this, Husbands, love your wives In the same way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, we are to give ourselves up in service, sacrificially giving to our wives. Uh, Philippians 2 says this, and this is really for all Christians, not just in marriage, but certainly in marriage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And marriage is a great place to practice this. Because there's not enough places in the world to practice, apparently. <laughs> uh, but, but you can practice at home, serving each other. Right? Learning how to serve, learning how to give. And so God's design for marriage is not my own self-fulfillment. It is. Um, but it is for my growth my development, and a place to practice and learn how to serve and give my life unselfishly and sacrificially to another person. Um, we'll stop there, but d- d- let me just say that this isn't just about being married, and, and uh, we'll talk about this next Sunday, but, uh, but Jesus makes it clear that uh, singleness is also valued, um, The disciples sarcastically say, if this is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Like, who would want to be married? Like, if it's about growth and serving and, like, stuff like that, right? Why don't we just stay single? And Jesus said, well, yeah, actually, that is an option. Which would have been mind-blowing for them, because in their day, everybody got married. But Jesus said, no, actually, singleness is a noble choice. If you're single for the kingdom, and, and you know, if you think the way the world thinks that it's all about self-fulfillment, it would be easy to be disappointed in being single. Because you would feel like I can never be fulfilled if I don't have some person who worships me. Right? But if we have the right understanding of marriage, guess what? You can grow and you can serve being single. <laughs> right? Right? God can bring people into life who will help you grow and learn new perspective. And and there's plenty of places to serve, and you can focus in in unique ways on kingdom work, right? Um, So as we enter into 2021, like what does God, what does it mean to fulfill God's plan in your life for marriage, for singleness? What is God calling you to do this year? Let's pray.